the COVID vaccine was approved for emergency use, which is not the same as standard approval, but they were able to make a decision with limited information. They don't have follow-up information, for example, of what kind of long-term effects of the vaccine. One of the key things that the FDA has to do when deciding whether to approve a new compound is to balance the benefits that this new medicine will bring to the population, as well as the risk. The COVID-19 pandemic was something new and different, caused, if you'll remember, by the novel coronavirus. And when it spread as rapidly as it did, the Food and Drug Administration didn't have any choice. Starting less than a year ago, it had to find and approve an effective vaccine as soon as possible, with the goal of saving many millions of lives. And fortunately, it did, setting a record for rapid development and inoculations are underway. So why can't the FDA do that more often? Hello again, I'm Warren Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management, where Fernanda Bravo is a professor. She and her colleagues have studied the FDA's drug approval process when there's not a national emergency, and they found out there could be a lot of improvement with potential consequences for all of our healthcare. Professor Bravo, welcome. Hi, Warren. Thank you for having me. The FDA process is very complex for approving drugs. It involves uh, balancing the risks versus the benefits. In choosing to study the process, uh, you look very specifically at three diseases, breast cancer and HIV and hypertension. Why did you choose those? Well, these three diseases are among the top 25 causes of premature mortality in the U.S., and they account for about 10% of the drug development in the year 2016. So we have a good understanding of the pre-approval process as well as post-approval process for these three diseases. So what were the results? What did you find? Yeah, so in our study, we basically took an analytical approach to understand how the FDA could make a more objective approach for approving new medicines. So one of the key things that the FDA has to do when deciding whether to approve a new compound is to balance the, the benefits that this new medicine will bring to the population as well as the risk. And, and in doing that, one of the key things that they look is to the safety and efficacy results from clinical trials. In doing this assessment, the FDA considers various aspects of the disease as well as the development process, uh, prevalence, um, severity specific of the disease, and then also what is out there. Are there alternatives? When they make these decisions, it's very unclear how all these things get weighted for making this approval decision. And so what we aim to do with our analytical approach is to have a more objective way in which you can take into account pre-approval, meaning clinical trial results, like the duration of the clinical trials, the rate at which the clinical trials drop, um, as well as post-approval uh, features like obsolescence of existing drugs, what other therapies are out there available in a more objective manner. 
And what we found is that if we compare to the current standards, our framework suggests that for diseases like breast cancer and hypertension, the FDA could apply a more kind of relaxed approval standards to increase the number of effective therapies that are out there. But for diseases like HIV, uh, we found that a more uh, stricter approval process will be better because it will minimize the risk of one type of error, meaning putting ineffective medicines out in the market. So what I understand that you've concluded is that the processes are in fact for some diseases, some conditions, too stringent, whereas for other diseases, they're not stringent enough. Exactly. This all depends on, on various aspects. So for example, I'm going to take an extreme case here. If you think about Alzheimer, we don't have uh, many therapies out there. And so if you apply the same standards that you apply for a disease like hypertension, then you're going to end up with basically no drugs in the market, which is kind of what we have today. But if you think about the need for these drugs and how many drugs are in clinical trial phase, not many, how many people are affected by this disease, and you start weighting this in a more objective way, you might end up approving a drug for Alzheimer's disease that is actually not 90% effective, but still the benefit could surpass the risk for this population. So if you have the disease or you're subjected to it, even if you don't have 90%, 40 to 60% would be better than nothing. It sounds like the FDA is making the perfect the enemy of the good. <laughs> exactly. Actually, recently I learned that there is a new drug for Alzheimer that just started phase two clinical trials. I think it's the first one that has been able to move into the second stage. The effectiveness is not very high. It's between 40 and 60 percent. But everybody's kind of excited because if the FDA takes into consideration not just the effectiveness, but also the need that we have out there, they might be able to approve something that could seem less effective. But again, you have to weigh the risk and the benefits. And our approach is providing, I would say, a more objective and transparent way of weighting all these factors when making this decision. So is the FDA taking note of your research? Is it possible to get them to at least consider the possibility of approving a drug for Alzheimer's that might only be 40 or 60 percent effective, even though their normal standards would require something higher than them? Well, we have evidence that they have made exceptions. And so the vaccine for COVID is one exception. It's an example of how flexible they can be. The COVID vaccine was approved for emergency use, which is not the same as standard approval. But nonetheless, they were able to make a decision with limited information. And they don't have follow-up information, for example, of kind of long-term effects of the vaccine. But when you weigh the benefits and the risk, we know that they can do it. The issue is that today all this is happening closed door and there's a lack of transparency in how these factors get uh, weighted. It would seem to me that they were very lucky that it turned out that they had the vaccines that were well over 90% effective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, safety concerns are very minimum and efficacy resulting from clinical trials are quite high, like close to 95%. So I, I don't think this was a very hard decision for them. But we will see for diseases like Alzheimer's, where the efficacy from clinical trials is not 90%, then you need to be a little more careful when you make this decision. 
It seems to me there's a real public relations effort to all of this, particularly when people don't know very much about how the process works. And for example, when you say that there hasn't been much in the way of long-term studies as to what might happen down the line, that makes some people reluctant to even take the vaccine. Yeah, so the FDA, it makes a big effort in trying to assure people that medicines are approved in a way that is consistent and ensures the the safety of the general population. That said, they are not free of mistakes. And and through the history, we had seen that the FDA had withdrawn some drugs from the market. So that's part also the post-approval surveillance programs that they have. And in the case of the COVID vaccine, that's something that they're evaluating right now now, as many, many Americans are getting vaccinated, they are really measuring and following up and try to get a sense of how this new vaccine is performing in the general population. And so the FDA has mechanisms to follow up, and they are fairly good at tracking and monitoring what happens to a drug when it's used in the general population. One of the things that you've called for in papers, more transparency, and when FDA officials will be asked questions about what it is they're doing, and they just give you a stare without seeming to respond one way or the other, suggesting that they're not very open, it would appear, to changing their procedures. Yeah, so we shared this work with them. They were very interested in kind of understanding what we were doing. We have several meetings with some teams and gave a talk to them. They're interesting. They see the value, but I think they are just restricted to share. And when you ask them, okay, is this close to what you're doing, the way you are thinking about how to incorporate this and that dimension, they tend to be quiet and and just... (laughs) say we are not allowed to to tell you more about it. But I know from other colleagues that have interacted in similar ways with the FDA, they say that down the road, you see that the talk that you you share with them had an impact in the way they're making decisions. If you follow the process, basically, if you see, I don't know, two, three years from now, you see a publication from the FDA and you can see basically where your hand had something to, (laughs) to do with what they are doing at that point. But I don't think they are very open to to share what they do and and to be very open about how they can use your input. If they were more open, would there be an issue of revealing things that might have a competitive advantage or disadvantage to somebody if they were looking at a particular drug and made it known what their findings were? Could that help other drug manufacturers to get into competition and do it better? Uh, So there is a lot of privacy going on. I think that's one of the reasons why they cannot share their procedures as much. But at the same time, the FDA has been criticized by their lack of ability managing conflict of interest as well. So there are some reports that said like a lot of staff at the FDA who have been involved in approving specific drugs end up working for those manufacturers 10 years down the road. So there are conflicts of interest and I don't think the FDA is very transparent in how they manage them. And we see publicly that they don't manage them well. Talking about the military, when you retire as a high-ranking member of the military, there are limitations on how soon you can go to work for a company that's in the defense contracting business. 
Should there be similar rules, do you think, for staffers at the FDA? I don't think it's appropriate for somebody that was involved in the approval of a drug, like after they retire, they go and and work for these companies, basically bring with them all the knowledge of the approval process that they gained where they were at the FDA. Or another example of this is people that retire from the FDA sometimes create their own consulting firms and they offer expertise to pharmaceutical firms, also using the knowledge that they have from the approval process when they were at the FDA. So I think there should be a little more regulation. And we see that we see in other companies too, private companies uh, put these constraints in their contracts. So I think this is kind of like a low hanging fruit that could be improved the process. Sounds like it. One of the things too, that as I understand it, a lot of what the FDA is looking at uh, is research and development by uh, one or another pharmaceutical company. So there must be a lot of pressure from that company to have the approval process speeded up. Yeah, so there's a lot of back and forth between the manufacturers as well as the FDA in how they design certain kind of processes. For example, the design of clinical trials. There are many different ways in which you can design clinical trials and the FDA gets feedback from manufacturers. And these manufacturers are the ones that are using these clinical trials. So you see already there that there is a conflict of interest. Are there particular drugs that you've come across where there is, in fact, real progress being made, uh, but the approval process is making it difficult for people who really need the drug and who might uh, succumb to the disease if they don't get it? Is there that going on now in other areas besides Alzheimer's? Yeah, so the FDA has some other programs to try to accelerate, to incentivize manufacturers to invest in R&D for understudy diseases. And so, for example, one of the programs they have is the Orphan Drug Program, where they provide monetary incentives for manufacturers, tax incentives for manufacturers to develop drugs for orphan diseases, affecting a very small portion of the population. That's kind of one example. They have other programs that mostly focus in trying to accelerate the approval process. Cancer is is one area where they are trying to accelerate all review process and many of the clinical trials end up in one of these kind of fast track programs that the FDA has. So that's one that for sure is using a lot of efforts right now. There's always a risk of going too far. And if you have a fast track effort approving a drug that turns out to have more risk than had been anticipated so that uh, people suffer from it rather than benefiting from it. Absolutely. The FDA has some mechanisms to try to correct those decisions because what you see from the clinical trial is, is just the performance of the drug in a very limited cohort that is not representative of the general population. So you need to do some follow up when these drugs are out in the market you're going to start observing all sort of safety issues and efficacy effectiveness is no longer as high as thought from the clinical trial. And so you need to do some pharmacovigilance uh, post-approval. And that's actually one area that I've been very interested in and I'm starting to look into it and how can you accelerate the discovery of these adverse events when a drug has been approved and is out for general use in the population. And there are ways in which you can use existing information and 
information that you are collecting as the drug is being used by broader groups that could be used to accelerate this process, meaning that you don't need to wait until you observe, I don't know, like a thousand adverse reactions to call it and say this drug should be removed from the market. Maybe you can do this when you have half of those data points. And so I'm working with some colleagues at the University of Michigan in developing an approach to to fasten the discovery of these adverse reactions. So obviously all this is a work in progress, and I think we should all thank you for the work that you are doing. It's clearly important to everybody, given that we're all susceptible to one disease or another. Let me ask you this. Medicine in general in the United States is big business, and particularly in the pharmaceutical area, we refer to big pharma, and there's an enormous amount of money involved in it. Is it different in other countries, and are there models that we might look to that would be helpful to alleviate some of the problems you've outlined? Well, the U.S. has a little bit of an interesting model. The healthcare industry as a whole is, is very fragmented. It's treated as a kind of private product. It's not paid by the government. And therefore, you have this kind of market forces at play, and it behaves as just like a regular private product. And in other countries, like in Europe, where healthcare is mostly funded by the government, I think you have less of these situations. Uh, you have, I know, uh, written a good deal about uh, healthcare networks that are growing up in order to accommodate the situation created by the federal government, and very particularly the Affordable Care Act. What can you tell us in a very general way about what's going on there and what people can expect? The last decade has been a transformation of the healthcare industry in the U.S. So if we think about the way in which uh, hospitals and providers are being paid has completely changed in the last 10 years. They moved from a fee-for-service model where they were paid by the volume of the services that they provide. And now they are being pushed into a model that rewards value. And so they are not getting paid for everything that they do. And now they have an incentive to deliver high quality of care. And furthermore, now many of them are at risk for the cost of the care that they deliver. And so this has completely changed. I think we're still in the transition. These incentives haven't kicked in fully. And so I think for the next decade or so, we're going to still see kind of this transformation of how the providers themselves kind of reorganize and move from this idea of like more volume brings me more value versus something that really focuses on keeping people healthy. So there's been a lot of concern about overtreatment, obviously, and uh, there's an important goal is to uh, reduce that clearly, and yet you still have to pay the providers for what they do. What's the impact of all of this on health insurance? So the system is, is changing. Um, the consolidation that you mentioned before hasn't happened only in the provider side, but also in the insurance side. So now we have these like big insurance companies. So they are getting a lot of power. And the reason why they're trying to consolidate is because they need to mitigate risk, basically. And this risk is coming from the Affordable Care Act. Everybody has to have insurance. And so they have to offer different products, different insurance types to all the population. And that increases is the risk because you're going to just be having uh, a much broader set of patients in your portfolio. And so they are now at more risk. And so that's kind of what has pushed their consolidation. For the patient side, now by law, basically, you are required to have 
healthcare insurance. And on one hand, this is great because everybody can have insurance and insurance companies are creating these products so low-income individuals can have access to insurance. But I think there's a misunderstanding here what kind of insurance they're getting. There's an enormous amount of complexity in these things. The insurance policies are different. We're told that it's wonderful to be able to have choice in this matter, and yet people don't really know enough to make the kinds of choices that are required. Yeah, so these are complex products to analyze, and I think as individuals, we are not prepared to choose these products. I mean, when you go to the supermarket and you want to buy something, I mean, you can assess the quality of that product because you know what features to look for when you are making the purchasing decision. But for insurance, it's just very obscure. There is all these details and just the jargon is very hard for many patients to understand. Uh, Why do I have a copayment? Or what is my deductible? What does it mean to have a maximum deductible? And so on. And so all these things you need to understand when you make a choice. And we're expecting a lot from the individuals in the country that haven't educated them in how to make this decision. Let me ask you one final question. Why is it that the cost of medical treatment has gone up so much so fast? From the provider perspective, until recently, they were not accountable for the cost of the care that they receive. And you can ask any doctor how much it costs to do a specific procedure, and they will have no idea. And so for their entire life, these hospitals and providers haven't had to worry about cost because it was not part of the equation. But with Affordable Care Act, that's something that has been brought to their attention. And now this is recent, this is in the last 10 years, and I would say the last five years, they are being pushed basically to understand their cost and to understand what it costs them to deliver care. They didn't know. That's one of the reasons why this is an ill industry. If you go to any other industry, it's unheard of that you don't know how much it costs you to do a service or to put a product out there. But in healthcare, it's just so obscure and they really don't know. I mean, they have proxies and the proxies might be right or wrong. And sometimes they are more precise than others, but they don't have a a clear way of doing their cost allocation. Once again, we're talking about businesses. And of course, they want to be able to charge, you know, less than the other guy. And is there any possibility uh, for standardization of the cost of medical procedures? There is. And so Medicare has some guidelines. This is just for Medicare patients, but a lot of the insurance companies tend to imitate or follow what Centers for Medicare suggest. It takes a little bit of time, but they tend to adopt some of the guidelines. There are specific payment models that are aiming to that. For example, bundle payment is trying to define what are the set of activities and resources that need to be used for delivering care from point A to point B, meaning since the patient, you know, is decided that this patient is going to have this procedure all the way to 90 or more days after discharge. And so they're trying to standardize through payments the delivery of care. And the hope is that that will translate also into cost. There's so much uncertainty involved in all of this, and we're talking about economics and business practices. There is a a lot at stake for people when we talk about medication in any way. It's so helpful to hear from you. Once again, Fernando Brava at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, and thank you so much for being with us. Uh Thank you, Warren. It was a pleasure. I'm Warren Olney. This has been How the World Works from the UCLA Anderson School. Thanks very much for listening. Join us again.